Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with musician Andrew Bird. Andrew Bird found music early. He started playing the violin when he was just four years old using the Suzuki method. But Andrew argues he wasn't prodigy material. Yes, he was naturally musical, but classical training requires strict adherence to rules and technique. And that just wasn't his thing. As he tells it, I always had this rebellious response to my teachers. I was trying to bust out of it before I had the basics. They would say, just learn what we're trying to teach you and then you can do all that other stuff. Of course, my response was, but when? It took a bit of time, but in his late teens, Andrew finally discovered a scene that piqued his interest. He says, when I came out of music school, I started going to the club Lounge Axe in Chicago, and I was perplexed by this thing called indie rock. The guitars were spitefully out of tune, and the singing was a little wayfish, but I was fascinated by it. Well, the DIY nature of the genre was even more appealing to Andrew. He didn't need to wait for permission or for someone to say, okay, now you've earned a place in the orchestra. Once Andrew took the reins of his own solo career, he made a name for himself with his unique melodies and unconventional way of playing the violin. Over the years, he's released music at a prolific pace, 15 albums in the past 13 years to be exact. My finest work yet is his latest, and it's filled with infectious melodies, cinematic themes, probing lyrics, and his signature whistling. It's clear that a large part of his success comes from his self-proclaimed pride in being the weirdo. It's no wonder he'd love to call his early music teachers and say, hey look, I'm breaking all the rules and people are loving it. Andrew joins off camera to talk about the madness that drives his songwriting process, why he hates headphones, and why he whistles when he works, constantly. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Sure, my pleasure. You know, like I was telling you when you walked in here this morning, um, I feel like we should already know each other. And yeah. From all the time I've spent in Chicago, all the time I've spent at Largo, and all of the people we probably have in common, it's kind of amazing that we haven't met. It's true, yeah. So I'm really happy to have you on here, and I love your music, and your latest record, entitled My Finest Work Yet, is really infectious, and I've been listening to it kind of nonstop, and I do think it's your finest work yet. Well, thanks. <laughs> I mean, when I named it that, I, I wasn't all entirely serious, but, um, you know, I've made a lot of records. Yeah, it was, what, you made like 14 before this? Something like 14, and it just seems kind of silly at this point to name it, to, to kind of beat around the bush with the title or do something poetic or, right, right, right. you know, it, everything I tried, I tried a hundred different titles and they all seemed pretentious and, and, uh, and the whole act of trying to name a body of work with something that wraps it all up into one neat, tiny, tidy package. Um, I just kind of went with this. Well, I think some of my fondest memories of music, the, the whole experience of the title and what that means and the sequence of it and the artwork and all that, it, it meant a lot. And I think yeah. as music transitioned out of that approach, maybe some of the mystery or some of the intrigue was lost with that. Yeah, and I'm not a purist about the album format, but it does make sense that, because um, in the early stages of writing the record, everything's in this sort of liquid magma state hasn't solidified yet and you know early on some of the songs started off as one song and it split off and became two so when you hear like a common thread through a record of different 
themes or ideas, it's probably because they used to be the same song. You know oh, what I mean? That's interesting. And yeah. then just the process of sequencing is doing a set list every night, but then also doing the albums um, and working out how one song should flow to the next. I spent a tremendous amount of time on that. You know, I was reading about the way you recorded this record, and mm -hmm. you recorded it live to tape, mm -hmm. which is a hard thing to do. And it was the accepted form of recording around the time that the Beatles were making records, and then the Beatles showed everybody that you could completely deconstruct the process and put it back together again later. Yes. But listening to this record in headphones is an interesting experience because there is an atmosphere to it. Mm -hmm. In particular, Bloodless for Now, it's almost yeah. like there's a whole cinematic theme to it or mm -hmm. a sound almost almost like when you put the doors riders of the storm on yeah all of a sudden you're transported to like it sounds like a place or, a, or there's a mood to it yeah and i was curious how much your recording process do you think transfers to the listener whether it's unconscious or conscious that you know what i mean and how important is it yeah all i know is that over the years the songs that i've done to tape that were more alive feel more valuable to me like Why they have more weight is? to them I don't know if it's either that, that the format requires a certain process and then that translates, but I think it's mostly that it's palpable when, when people are listening, musicians are listening to the, each other in real time and responding to each other. I mean, your drummer is, uh, I'm singing live and my drummer is six feet away from me. So he has to play quiet, but still groove. And then, yeah, that song Bloodless was the first song where it's like, it came back through the speakers. I was like, that's the sound, that's that room sound. Yeah. And I think it's also because it has that kind of jazz to gospel kind of groove thing yeah. going on. The ride is going. Um, the ride kind of infuses through the room. And um, I was singing live, uh, I hate headphones. It takes, anything that takes me out of um, the room, I don't, I feel immediately, um, disconnected and, and wrong. So um, I put my vocal, I had a vocal mic right next to the recording mic that would go through my amp, a little reverb, just to give me a little more of a boost. Right. But uh, I really studied the Van Gelder, uh, Rudy Van Gelder school. Um, he was the go-to guy in New Jersey for all the jazz artists, Miles Davis, John okay. Coltrane, and he did these um, beautiful recordings, you know, uh, kind of blue and, yeah. you know. Giant steps, probably. Yeah, I mean, just seminal recordings, you know, getting this really r beautiful room sound, and that was my goal with this record. Philosophically, too, it seems like there's a truth to that kind of recording, yes. that when you're all in the room playing together, mm -hmm. I'm sure the drummer is not only trying to be sympathetic volume-wise to the level of what you're singing, mm -hmm. but he's hearing what you're singing. Yeah. Whereas if you're tracking it differently, the drummer's probably tracking it to a scratch vocal. Right. So I suppose in a it's way... It's really hard with headphones on and an overdub to be, to like sing at the right volume. Because yeah. you're not having to fill the corners of the room with your voice. And every time I move in, go into a different room, I sing differently because I'm trying to, you know, sort of echolocate that room and, and figure out how to fill it. So you play at a festival, I, I sing an octave higher because you're outside and you're trying to project to the horizon. Right. Do you think this record is the closest that you've come to representing yourself as an artist on a recording? I think so. I think so. I mean, I listened to older records and um, when I was living in Chicago in a typical Chicago apartment, if you're writing songs in that 
environment and then taking it to the studio where you have headphones on. All that stuff I'm singing in a little more um, head voice, a little more like precious and intimate way. Um, but over the years, perform getting more into live performance and uh, I've been trying to bridge that gap between the way I perform on stage, projecting outwards to human beings, um, to when you go into the studio. And I really resist that deconstructing and putting things back together because I lose the map really quick. And then what happens to you, like, just from a personal feeling standpoint? Well, it, uh, I don't love those recordings that I did um, piece by piece. They're more, they feel more like architecture than music. And when I hear other albums, I hear them that way, too. I'm like, I can tell that was done on a grid, right. track by track. And you can, make those, you can make yourself sound larger than life when you do things that way because everything's controlled and you can do a glorious mix, but they're not, they're not my favorite recordings. It is a more truthful approach that this is, you're hearing a recording of me doing what I do. Yeah. And I guess it comes down to, you're probably more comfortable in a live setting than you are in a studio. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's always been the case. I don't love knob twiddling and tweaking stuff. Uh, after the performance, it starts to become tedious right. to me. Um, as soon as you start listening back to your performance and, and criticizing it, um, you're tempted to change who you are. Right. And that's the trick. It's kind of, I equate it to when you hear your voice on the outgoing uh, message on your machine or something. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's me? I sound like such a chump, you know? It's a little bit like that. You hear your voice come back and you're like, oh, I'm going to... I'm going to tweak, I'm going to go back in and perform a little differently. And that kind of, it's like this vice keeps turning as you go do more and more takes and you become less and less yourself. Maybe by being more technically proficient, you're, you're being less, uh, less of who you are. Could be. I mean, I often feel I'm overeducated to do what I'm doing. And, and it, the more things that, like picking up the guitar, which I taught myself to play, like, 12 years ago, I'm still kind of ham-fisted compared to the violin. Right. But I feel a sense of excitement and power when I pick up the guitar. And I still don't know how to play a bar chord. Really? <laughs> I don't. My voicings are very weird. It's the only what I could possibly do on the violin, you know. Right. I realized that, okay, I see why this is the instrument of choice for a songwriter, because it's away from my neck and I'm trying to sing. Right. You know? <laughs> I never thought of that. It's very hard to sing while you're jamming something into your neck. It is. I, st I play the violin like a guitar as well, but right. there's limits to the keys you can play easily in chord on the violin. And so that guitar d does make sense as a for songwriting tool. Right. Um, but being at the limit of your abilities uh, is, I find, is a good thing. It, or it forces me to be more basic and simple and you know you can't hide behind your technical expertise when exactly. you're playing the guitar but you can on the violin you yeah. you're almost too good at it to find those mistakes and surprises in a way yeah and uh, the guitar keeps me kind of grounded most of this record was tracked with a guitar in hand well for people who don't know you came up as a classically trained violinist mm -hmm. from a very young age right like mm -hmm. age four started yeah. playing violin and you listen to your work and you're working within the structure of the three to four minute 
pop song, mm -hmm. which is very different than the way you came up. And I was curious if you always felt kind of like you you never settled in one genre. Do you think that's accurate? Uh, it is. It is. I mean, I did grow up all through high school playing violin, and and the repertoire that I was playing was most of my diet. In order to play these concertos, like. I, I would listen to that most of the time, um, but I was I was never fully indoctrinated into the classical scene. I always kind of resisted any any particular scene that required that strict adherence. Um, so when I made the leap out of it, somewhere around age seventeen, eighteen, uh -huh. I didn't have to unlearn too much to to get out of it. It was I started playing different like Irish music and early jazz and um, every week or two I was into something new. Right. But anytime I got into like a scene that where there was a sense of competition and it was like super important like uh, in like bluegrass can be or Irish music or any particular genre I would, I would kind of bristle and feel like okay time to go. Which probably told you a lot about yourself right? Right. It was kind of part of my identity to kind of feel like an outsider anyway or is it kind of I kind of took a certain pride in it I guess you did. In, in being kind of the the weirdo but <laughs> it wasn't until like I came out of music school and I was in Chicago and I started going to lounge acts and empty bottle or metro and all these places and I was really perplexed by this thing called indie rock or whatever their time they were calling it post rock or whatever it almost seemed like spitefully, the guitars were spitefully out of tune and the singing was a little wayfish and, and out of tune as well. And I was just, so I had to put, try to, I was still fascinated by it. Like I was like, what, what's going on here? And I would judge it too. I'd be like, what this, you know, <laughs> but I was still drawn to it. The, the DIY thing, you know, just the fact that you didn't have to wait for anybody to say, okay, now you have this place in an orchestra or you, you know, it's kind of like there's codified ways to advance your career in anything with as, as an actor, you got headshots and, you know, all sure. that stuff. It's like waiting for someone to tap to you. anoint you, first chair or whatever. Yes, and I like this, that I could just make some posters and book a show and put my band together and, and I, I could be in control of the whole thing. It's like you're directing your own movie or whatever. So yeah, that's where it kind of started getting into this song songwriting world and, and and to this day, like the people I play with, I'm I'm the most I'm still the the advocate for the most simple basic thing. You know, I play with a lot of people that want to do wild chord substitutions and right. sort of muso things and I'm I'm like I don't need that to make this song work, you know. You know, it's funny, sometimes when I like a musician, I'll go and learn a few songs just mm -hmm. to sort of put myself in the headspace. And I thought, I'm, I'll probably have some trouble with some Andrew Bird songs because, you know, he's a classically trained, you know, the, these melodies, mm -hmm. they seem exciting and new and original, but you're just playing D, G, and A minor, you know? And really? It's like, yeah. Wow. And that you're finding melodies that feel new to me in those chords. That is the biggest trick of all of a songwriter. Yeah. But it's the hardest thing in the world to write a simple song. It's true. Why? I don't know, man. It's, it's, there's still so much you can do with 
C and G. You know, there's still, I find, or even just C, there's just, you know, there's some great songs that are just two chords. And I think it's, it's if that the artist who's writing it has found a, something that's gotten under their own skin and they can't help but play it, like it's, it's completely compelling to them and no one's, they haven't told themselves that this is just C and G. They just believe in what they're doing. There's something there that, um, that there's a palpable, like, um, thing when you, when you feel like you've invented CNG. Yes. That's a good way to put it. Because <laughs> I would think that when a melody comes to you, and you, the first thing you think is, oh, I must have heard that somewhere. Yeah. And you're excited to play it because you didn't make it up. But you did. Like, it's that, it's that classic argument. Is it craft? Or are you visited by some muse every now and then and you're given a melody? Yeah, I mean, every single thing I put on a record is something that's driven me mad. You know, what do you every, mean? Like, every melody or idea is one that, that's gone beyond just the usual flow of, of noise that's coming through the day and sticks, gets caught on something and, and grows. It's kind of, I, the metaphor I use is just, yeah, the, the stream of ideas that are the everyday noise and then there's some little branch in the river that snags something and then other stuff gathers around it and then it keeps growing until it's a dam. And it could be just this, really, the, often it is the simplest thing. So why did it stand out, you know? And do you ever question whether or not it's already been written and you subconsciously... Sometimes, and that's, 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 um, that hasn't happened much recently, but it, it, uh, it's not always the worst uh, thing when you think that's happening. It means you might be onto something, actually. Right. Or it means you're, you've actually subconsciously lifted something from someone else. Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Let's take a little break from the conversation so I can talk to you about this week's sponsor, Quip. It's time for spring cleaning, and Quip's got an easy way to start with your brushing habits. Just two minutes twice a day can help pave the way to a healthier mouth and mind. And now the whole family can get refreshed with Quip. The new Kids Quip has the same two-minute timer and guiding pulses as the original version with no childish gimmicks, so they can brush just like a grown-up. And as someone who has a house full of Quip toothbrushes, I can tell you my kids brush longer and have cleaner mouths and teeth since they've started using Quip. I'm big on Quip, and if you haven't tried them yet, you've got to give it a try. So let me tell you some details about Quip. First off, it's a subscription toothbrush and toothpaste that makes taking care of your teeth so easy that you'd never have to think about buying toothpaste or using clunky chargers to keep your electric toothbrush going or running out of batteries. It's just the perfect simple system. It travels great, it looks great, it works great. And for kids, the new brush is the same as the original version, just tweaked for size down mouths. Kids are inspired to brush better and more often with oral care that looks and feels like the products the adults in their life use. And they're proud to use Quip. I helped my kids develop a grown-up routine without childish gimmicks. And kid-friendly features like a small brush head, watermelon anti-cavity toothpaste, and rubber grip handles in colors the little ones will love. Quip has the perfect level of sensitive sonic vibrations for an effective clean that's gentle on your sensitive gums. And, this is my favorite feature, the multi-use cover works as a stand, mounts to mirrors, and slides over your bristles to pack and protect your Quip on the go. 
That means Quip declutters your sink and cabinet and makes traveling with an electric toothbrush easier. My old habit was to use an electric toothbrush at home and then use a cheap, throwaway toothbrush on the road. But now I just take Quip with me everywhere I go, and I love it. Plus, there are no wires or a clunky charger, and it runs for three months on a single charge. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your oral health. We use Quip every day in our house, and it has made the brushing experience infinitely better. That's why I love Quip and why over 1 million happy, healthy mouths do too. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash off camera right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash off camera. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash off camera. Now back to the show. When I listen to a couple of the songs on the new record, and I've read a, a lot about the record knowing that you were coming here, and mm -hmm. a lot of people tend to pick up on the political or the current event yeah. things that you're writing about. But it's funny for me, I tend to make up my own narrative to songs. I will grab on to a line or a couple lines that make sense to me, and I will make my own narrative mm -hmm. about what that song is about. On your song Sisyphus, there's a line that says, there's a house down there, but I lost it long ago. And I know the song is not about someone standing up on a cliff in the Hollywood Hills looking down at a house where he used to have a family, right. and now he can't get close to that, and he can only see his old life from a distance. But at the same time, it's so visual and cinematic to me mm -hmm. that I attach my own meaning to the song, and I don't know if it's that important that, that you're writing about something completely different <laughs> to my experience of it. No, I mean, that's, that's the upside of, of um, ambiguity. <laughs> in songwriting, I think it's important not to be too explicit in a song. I mean, what, what do you think a song can do that a book or a movie can't? That's a good question. Um, because I, I often wonder why songs aren't held to the same um, quality criteria that books and movies are, or the same rigorousness. But those are, books and movies tend are most often narratives. Yeah. And there's a tradition of narrative, story songs, ballads, whatever. But that's a tricky thing in a song. Like if, if you have a beginning, middle, and end in a song, uh, it gets consumed like a story. And once you know the story, you're kind of done with the song. Right. If the purpose of the song is simply to tell the story, mm -hmm. then you get it. And I, I agree with you. But yet, the song has this has this secret weapon, which is that if a melody gets stuck in your, in your brain, even if you know the story, you want to hear it over and over again. Yeah. I, growing up, I did not listen to songs um, for meaning or, or story. I, I listened kind of for little sound bites, little moments that I most often didn't, didn't hear right. Just phonetic moments where everything kind of came together in, into a feeling. But I really didn't care what what they were saying, honestly. And I, if I, usually when I did finally figure out what they were saying, I was disappointed. Right. <laughs> and right. I, was done, I was done with it. Yeah. Um, but uh, it wasn't until more recently that, that I, I finally had the experience of listening to a song. Uh, it was a Towns Van Zandt song where, where I was like, oh, this is how I think a lot of people listen to music. I, I was like, he's kind of singing about something I'm going through and I'm related to my own life, but that's usually how I didn't listen. I listen more like for 
like I said, just kind of a mixture of texture and melody and, and tone. And, um, and that's the way I started writing as a songwriter, was, was, um, was an, uh, writing lyrics was out of necessity because I, I wanted to use my voice. And I thought, what's going to make this melody more, more um, reach more ears is if I actually sing it. That's funny. So you didn't come from the approach of, I have something I have to get off my chest, and so I'm going to find a melody to go to it. No. So you weren't the guy that filled up books of poetry and then wrote a melody to it. No, but I did, when I didn't, early on, when I was like 18, I was trying to, like, how do you write a song? I would take poems and set them to music. So someone else's words. Yeah. Interesting. And that was a good exercise to just kind of get the ball rolling. Right. But no, I don't tend to fill, I don't write down words and then pick up the guitar and think what chords would go with this. That is a good segue into, into your process and, mm -hmm. and what starts it for you. Because I'm curious, when you're walking around throughout your day, how, how does like, the first germ of a song show up for you? Um, usually it's when I'm doing something very mundane, tedious, um, doing the dishes or painting a wall or something like that. But usually I'm occupied, manually occupied. Um, and do words come up or do, do notes Mostly come up? Uh, melodies. Really? Yeah, from the moment I wake up, it's just, there's a, a constant flow of, and I'm just whistling all day long. And maybe I'm just kind of, maybe it's just, you know, filler, or maybe it's something that really takes shape. And um, when certain conditions are just right, that particular melody will pop into my head. So for a while I was, every time I got into a, a taxi in New York um, with that air freshener and just the landscape of New York, right. a particular melody that became Don the Struggle um, kept coming into my head. So it's like a memory almost. Yeah, trigger, triggered, triggered by, by senses. And then it's happened enough that you can recall it. Um, or once I get it on an instrument, that then it's a little easier to, for muscle memory to, to grab it. So then once you have that melody on some instrument and, it, and it's defined for you, mm -hmm. how, do, how do words start getting attached to that? Well, then I've got like, in Don the Struggle, I've got da 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 so you got, you know, a syllabic framework. Right. For, and I start running words. I start sort of speaking in tongues and thinking what kind of words fall in those cracks. So you start, but then at the same time, I like cue up a certain subject that I've been thinking about. Oh, really? So I've got that kind of. So you're mixing. You're like, I've been thinking about these four things. I've got these four melodies. Let's yeah. try to start. And it all can happen without an instrument in the hand. Are you trying to surprise yourself? Yeah. And usually the things you care about and are, are worried about or thinking about um, tend to come to the, to the fore when you're doing that. Is that part exciting for you when that time is happening? Or like, I guess I'm wondering when the self-critic starts to first come in on it. Well, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I really enjoy these early stages when everything's kind of uh, fluid and I can't wait to show it to people when it's maybe 50% done. I, ca I can't wait till it's really done. Like strangers or, or friends? Or just or? at Largo or something like that. I'll, I'll, 
I'll kind of come on stage and I'll have a song that's like, I'm still trying to decide whether it's going to go this way or that way, and I'll, I'll, um, I'll be like, I don't know, folks. Kind of like a comedian trying out material, um, and oftentimes I'm following a comedian or something. But uh, if I adopt the same kind of posture of like, yeah, I, don't, I could go this. This is what I'm thinking about. It could go that, and I enjoy that like almost as if it's an open forum. Does it take that sort of exercise oftentimes to find out how the song really sounds? Like in other words, for a comedian, I've talked to several comedians that say they have no idea whether something's funny until they right. put it out there. They cannot predict mm -hmm. until they take it in front of an audience. And, yeah. and I wonder if there's some of that with you too, where... Sort of, I mean, when I do those shows and I've got a song, that, but I kind of know that the song uh, didn't come from a pure place and then when I do those songs, sometimes I'll get commissioned to write something. Right. And it has to be like for, for a, a film or a TV show. Yeah, or... and then I, it doesn't get used or something, so I just take it back. I said, I spent a lot of time on this, so I don't want it to go to waste. But then I try it in front of an audience and I break into a cold sweat before the song's over. And I'm like, yeah, it didn't come from like a, from a true place. And you had to sort of go through that exercise to find yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. Because um, you th say to yourself, oh, I'm a professional. I can, I can write for this scene or something, uh, something that it needs. And, and, but oftentimes it's like I can't compartmentalize. Um, usually what happens is like I, I'll write something really good for uh, a little TV show. And, uh, and has happened before. And, and, and I'll be like, no, that's... That's n I'm not getting paid enough to give him this, you know. So <laughs> you write, you write it out and you keep that one for yourself. Yeah, exactly. But back to what you're saying about the, um, you know, performing the song before it's finished and then that kind of awareness of it's starting to become a thing and you're starting, it's starting to exist. Yeah. You know, and I guess doing it in front of people makes it start to really exist. It's not just in your own head. But there's also like a voice that comes in, um, that I've learned to incorporate into the song itself. That second voice that pops in, if you've been working on a song for a long time, that is like calling you on some bullshit on the song, you know? Like right. It's, or is saying, you know... You're not good enough. Or, or just, just said, you're really um, getting too, uh, too dark or too navel-gazy. You're, you're getting too... You're just making this more complicated than it has to be. It's more obtuse than it really needs to be. And that voice either becomes someone in a duet or it becomes a bridge in a song. And I, I don't know, I, there's some, sometimes I wish songwriters um, would do that more often. I wish, because it, it, it um, I know so many people that are, are so funny and dark, but when they come around to, to writing a song, they don't think people want to hear that. They think a song is supposed to be this. It's supposed to be, um, uh, I don't know. You know what I mean? So yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It's like, well, that people don't want to know what I'm really like because yeah. I want to I sound like my heroes or I want to write songs that yeah. mean things to people. And, and exactly. It, it's our be, own. It's we, a new, good impulse to want to be universal and speak you know, to everybody. Right. But um, sometimes... That that dark humor that is in there 
is who they are doesn't come through in their songs, and I, I think that's a shame sometimes. Like, I think people feel cheated if they want to know that you've lived this thing. Well, yeah, what you're talking about is the idea that is most often presented in the form that you work in mm -hmm. is the construct that this is an autobiographical thing and, mm -hmm. and we're getting straight to the performer's heart and we're hearing the real story. Mm -hmm. And yet, you're saying so many people that you know, you know them personally, and they're, they're more than what they're presenting. Yeah. And you desire more truth. And, and maybe that's why you're attracted to comedians, because I think when a comedian does that, they do it with all the darkness and putting their insecurities on a display or... Well, it's tricky because I do all these shows at Largo where I am following a, a comedian or they're following me and I'll do a handful of songs. And um, it's... The audience expectations are completely different. Or it's, I think of it like when, you, when your third grade teacher breaks from the syllabus and tells a personal story and everyone's wrapped, you know. Right. They finally, we finally get a piece of like who this person we're looking at every day really is. Yeah. But um, when I walk on stage after a irreverent, funny comedian, um, people think, uh, people have to completely readjust their expectations and think, oh, here comes the songwriter with with their thoughts and feelings. Right. I'm supposed to feel differently now. And I don't know, I can't escape it. It's still, those are the expectations. I come on having just heard a set of a comedian that I thought was hilarious, and I start to pick up their mannerisms as a performer. And with this sort of, I don't know, folks, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, there is, and then they'll come on after me and feel insecure. We make each other very insecure, comedians and songwriters. It's a funny thing because it's kind of like I, I found the like the opposite to be true too, that you can say some of the most personal things that you would never tell anybody. Yeah, you that's can, the funny you can thing mask about them it. in a song though and, uh, and right. sing about it. I admire comedians because they're not hiding behind anything. They're living by their wits, you know. That's that seems interesting to me. Other f mediums, I'm very impressed by that. A novelist, a filmmaker. I sometimes wish songs were held to a higher, a similar standard. Do you actually find yourself drawn to that high wire act, like as a way to, to shock yourself into doing something original? It does. It is it has the effect of like pinching yourself to make sure you're awake in the moment. It ensures that you're, um, you're not ever phoning it in yeah. because there is that opportunity for failure at every turn. Um, but then sometimes the hardest thing to do is just to go up with, uh, with a guitar. Yeah. That must be quite a difference from the structure that you were educated and raised in musically. Mm -hmm. that you're looking for those moments of human frailty or mistakes, mm -hmm. and those are the things that really connect you with an audience. And those yeah. are probably the things that were trained out of you as a kid. They tried. Um, <laughs> I never like connected with, my, I mean, I connected with my teachers, but there was always this, this rebellious kind of, they were just trying to show me what they knew. Right. But I was like, but look, I, you know, look at this Hungarian gypsy music, how it relates to Dvorak or like, I wanted to improvise my own cadenzas in the concerto. I was like trying to 
bust out of it even before I had the basics. And it was just, just learn, learn what we're trying to teach you and learn the basics. Then you can do that stuff. But, but when? when? <laughs> but when? I was so impatient. And, and I saw so many people, so many mu young musicians around me do what they're supposed to do so long that they forgot or never, it never occurred to them to break out of it. Well, that's the question is if yeah. that approach is hammered into you for that long, can it actually kill the other side? It can, I think, if you um, give yourself over to it entirely. I mean, it's still, yeah, I still, f it's a little tiny part of me. It's been a long time ago since I was in that world, but still thinks, look, to my teacher, like, I'm failing and people are loving it, you know? <laughs> no, I don't know. It's just back to that kind of the DIY Chicago rock club world that, that I was figuring out where I fit into that. Yeah. Even the instrument you're holding is not, it doesn't matter. It's really, um, it's, it's really about your, your ideas or who you are or your persona. That's why I don't understand sometimes like um, when people, when the conditions aren't perfect for them to perform, they just can't do it. I'm like, just take whatever's in the room and make something happen. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I could tell you about this week's sponsor, DoorDash. If you're like me, you often find the day slipping away, and though you love to cook, you don't have time to plan a full meal and go to the grocery store. Well, you can treat yourself to the meal you deserve on demand from your favorite restaurant. Restaurants come to you with DoorDash. And as my kids get older and their activities go later into the evening, DoorDash is a great way to get a delicious meal delivered straight to the house so we can spend more time as a family talking and sharing our day together and less time cooking and doing dishes. DoorDash connects you to all your favorite restaurants in your city. Ordering is easy. You just use the DoorDash app and choose what you want to eat and your Dasher will bring it to you wherever you are. And by the way, I was at a public swimming pool about a month ago and the Dasher came right onto the pool deck and brought me some food. So they really welcome wherever you are. Not only is that burger place you love on DoorDash already, but over 310,000 other amazing restaurants are too. DoorDash connects you with door-to-door -door delivery in over 3,300 cities and all 50 states across the United States and Canada. You can order from your local go-tos or choose from your favorite chains like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and the Cheesecake Factory. Or you can discover a new restaurant. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. So right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order when you download the DoorDash app and enter the promo code CAMERA. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter the promo code CAMERA. Again, that's the promo code CAMERA for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. Now back to the show. When you were in high school, was the idea that you were going to eventually be first chair in the London Philharmonic, or, or was it your parents' expectation? I mean, were you a serious musician at that point? I thinking? was, though my, my parents were, my mom was careful to not let me get too sucked into it too early. Like, they were like, they were teachers, this is North Shore of Chicago, there was this husband-wife duo that like would take prodigies and turn them into, you know, sensations. Um, and they wanted, me to be in their studio, but she resisted. 
Oh, really? Because she thought it was just a recipe for burning out too early or something like that. So funny, because when I hear you were doing the Suzuki method and starting at four years old, I would assume you had the parents, or at least one parent, that, that was pushing you. I mean, my mom was, was really great. Was she a musician? No, but she had to play violin with me at the beginning for solidarity. What do you mean? That's what they ask in Suzuki, is that the parent get a violin and play early on so that it's not an adversarial thing right off the bat. Really? Yeah. And then quickly the kid surpasses the, the parent, very quickly. Is that, is that like a normal thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, the idea is that you're so young that you're, you're still, your brain is learning language and you learn music like a language. That's the whole principle of Suzuki. And it was by ear. So I eventually learned to read music, but I, my ear was always faster than my brain for reading. And so at a certain point, did you become aware, like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty good at this? Like, I was not, you know, prodigy material. I wasn't playing crazy technical stuff, but my teachers would say, you're very musical, which was an abstract notion at the time. Right. Um, what does that mean? But it was, it was like there were these kids that would do these competitions and be like, I remember this talk, you know, around me was like, oh, they're, they're very, they can play Tchaikovsky, but they're not very musical. They just kind of... You know, right, but they're winning the competitions because they're nailing all the the notes and they have the technique. And what they would say is, "You're very musical. You have a great tone, but you don't do your scales." So what do you do with that? Like, what was your plan? Well, I mean, I didn't know there was anything else for a long time. I didn't know that there were different ways to be a musician. I didn't even think I wanted to be a musician until I was 16 or 17. What did you want to be? I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Really? Yeah. Like, That's interesting. Yeah, I, t I, I think at the time I was more, I liked the visual of the, like the, the dark wood paneled office with the mid-century furniture and the... You wanted to just have a pipe and some slippers. And yeah, I, li I just, that seemed like a cool profession to me. It's just, really? Yeah, the whole, the whole picture. But, what was um, your crowd in high school? Were you, were, were you bullied? Were you popular? Were you... I was very shy. Um, but I was, you know, I was a little, uh, I hung out with the, like the goth, the art kids. Oh, you did? Those were my friends in high school. Um, so it was a lot of 4AD, this mortal coil, and, and was in the background. The Cure, I didn't, I, I hated it. I didn't like that music at all. But that was what was on the car when we were driving to the, the diner, you know, to hang out. So you never really fit in anywhere. Really, no. I kind of looked a little more preppy than my friends, and um, I was going downtown Chicago to play in the Youth Symphony and studying with a teacher down there, and so I'd spend the weekends with my grandparents downtown. I, it was around 16 or 17 that it becomes like this, this romantic, you, you start to form the idea of being a, an, an artist, and you get that romantic notion of like, I'm going to be an artist, and I'm going to die young. And it's going to be all full of pain and struggle. And, and that started to really catch on with me in late high school years. Was there an event or something that happened that switched where you're like, oh, no, this is my thing? Well, I think it was around when everything sucked. And, you know, and you're a teenager and, and I wasn't doing well in when school. When you say that, what, what story comes to mind of, of everything sucking? Well, it really started in sixth grade, but it, it, sixth grade through junior year in high school was, just, was just, just a rough time. But I was really, I was getting bullied a lot. I wasn't testing well. I was 
being put in like um, special education, even though I was reading Dostoevsky in eighth grade, they still, I was learning how to spell cat. They just didn't figure out, they didn't understand me as an individual in was pub, it, was public school. Was it like school. a um, dyslexia thing or? Uh, I was just really slow and really quiet. And I, my work was very slow, so I wouldn't finish tests. And then I was, I was so quiet that they thought I was slow. That was the word they used. That and was the, the PC word of the time. Yes. <laughs> um, and I was already, I'd been doing this Suzuki thing for so long that I'd already pretty accomplished as a violinist, but I hadn't really consciously thought of it. And I was like, I'm actually good at this. So I just, gra I just held on to that one thing and said, I'm going to be the greatest violinist. You know, you get these delusions of grandeur at that age. But that's when I threw myself into it. And I was practicing six, eight hours a day. Oh, really? Like age 17, 18, 19. I was like, I was a very serious young man. <laughs> and did that give you an identity that you were kind of lacking before that point in terms yeah, of? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, self-esteem and. Yeah, but not a social, not something that helped connect me to anybody. It was just like this personal competition, this personal struggle. I read that at one point your parents bought a farm and, mm -hmm. and you still have it? Yeah, they got it when I was like 12. Did you live on it full time? No, not at first. They moved out there when we, I finished high school and it's where I first wrote my first song when I was 18, was on the front porch of this farmhouse. And so it was important to me um, for a long time and then I was like 29 and I was in, at the hideout in Chicago and the proprietor there came up to me and um, Tim Tutton and he was like, we love having you here in Chicago, Andrew, but you know, this is about the time when you should like think about moving to New York or LA. Like he had concern, genuine concern for, for me that like that's what I needed to do to get to another level. Boy, what a, what a mentality of like <laughs> uh, the second city mentality. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, we're pretty good here, but if you want to, yeah, it's pretty funny. Because um, I was touring a little bit, I was, right. it was still pretty scrappy, and, and that's when I decided to move out to Western Illinois to fix up one of the barns on the farm. I fixed it up to be a studio, like a live workspace. Yeah, I read about that. I read that you pretty much went out there and isolated yourself, and you would get up, make breakfast, and yeah. work all day on music, right? Yeah. The isolation did become extreme, and I wasn't fully prepared for that, but it if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't, may not be talking to you right now. And I, I, that's when I really deprived myself, like put myself in a deprivation chamber of sorts. I had all this time on my hands and I wrote songs like Lull that were just two chords, but I was doing as much as I could with those two chords. And I was trying to like imagine, like I was trying to strip away all these reference points in my music kind of consciously. I was trying to like strip it down to the absolute basics of, of what I had to offer that was, that no one else was doing, I guess. It sounds like when you got away from everything and everybody, you got to see who you were. That's pretty much what happened. It wasn't as I planned, like I didn't make any records out there at first. And I would go from being out there for two or three weeks at a time not talking to anyone for like 10 days alone on the farm. And then I would go on tour. I would 
fill my Honda Element with uh, amps and instruments, and I would drive myself all over the country. Now, it, was there a point ever where you're thinking, like, why am I, like, I don't have to be isolated, or did you actually find some sort of a, I don't know, a bedrock? I, I wrote, a, was... wrote about it in songs a lot. That kind of came up a lot, like, why, what is this impulse I have to isolate myself or to be alone? Like, what's wrong with uh, being part of the society, you know? And I don't know if I ever completely worked it out. It's just that being that, that isolated made me appreciate community. Right. Uh, whereas I may have took it for granted before. Well, it seems like all the records and all of the genres and it, it all seems to be a journey to, to figuring out who you are. And it seems like with this new record, like you're totally occupying your own space. Mm -hmm. I read once, I don't know if it was something you said in your, you did this New York Times series of, mm -hmm. of articles where you, you wrote about the process of writing a song. Yeah. And it might have been in there where you said, the thing you love about songwriting is there's no guarantee that the result will be good or that the result is repeatable. Yeah. And I wondered if that was a window into the way you approach your life because, you know, there are people who do jobs with so much routine and manageability mm. because they want to avoid as much risk as possible. Yeah. There are other people like yourself where the risk is part of the deal. Yeah. And I, I wondered if you have thought about whether your attraction to your own profession is partially challenging yourself anew each day. I mean, there is that, that thing that, that when I get up in the morning, like, today could be the day I write the song that gets America singing the same tune. <laughs> you know, it's just like very idealistic notion that, that you could um, penetrate into, you know, this collective consciousness right. with, some, with a melody. But the weird thing is that you're no closer to understanding how to do that probably than you ever were, right? Like it, it, like no, not at all. That's the great mystery you of writing a you song. You get better at some things, but not, nothing guarantees you're going to write a better song. Why is that? I don't know, man. And part of that has to do with not knowing the rules. Um, early on, I definitely felt that not knowing the rules of, of what music... Not knowing like what chord is supposed to follow another chord right. um, can lead to some ear-catching moments. Or sometimes I see bands that get a little... start off very punk rock and are in this trajectory towards... Um, they're like, oh, we want to be real musicians. And then, then that's when it all goes south. Right. <laughs> Right. Knowledge is sometimes a bad thing in music. Yeah. It's funny, because yeah. you started with knowledge in some way. I observed, that I felt like I was on this opposite trajectory from a lot of um, the bands when I was in my early 20s. Like, You're trying to devolve where they're yeah, trying to evolve. Exactly. That's so interesting. Well, in a way, I guess you are rebelling against musical structure. Maybe not rebelling against whatever your life or your parents are, but, but you're rebelling against the structure that you were given with music and... Yeah. And maybe I'm still, that's... Yeah, I'm still drawn... I mean, it's, we all f kind of follow into the, fall into the eight-bar phrase generally as songwriters, but it's, I am really drawn to music that doesn't f automatically fall into that. Um, I think you said once that, that your job is to be... your job is to daydream. Yeah, that's something I realized 
and still is funny that vacations are good for business, you know. I do more work when I get out of town and, and get away. That's when everything starts happening. Can you not shut it off? Like, in other words, if you're walking around and a melody comes up, are, are you sort of a slave to that in a way that that has to be sort of dealt with? Or are there times when you consciously say, now I'm going to write? That's a good question. I, I used to write all the time when I was uh, traveling. Uh, usually it was in a van. And somehow when I went from the van to the bus, I stopped writing on the road. Because having to deal with the boredom of getting to the next gig and looking out the windshield at the horizon would get things going. Uh, but anytime I'm, I'm uh, um, in an unfamiliar place, just walking, it's guaranteed. Like, I've never had a writer's block issue. It's amazing. Well, listen, I think it's fascinating talking to you. And, and as a frustrated songwriter myself, I'm always fascinated with how people develop their own process and nurture it. And, and I think that the way you do things is kind of unique and it's, it's really interesting to hear your story. And I was wondering if you'd play a song for me. Yeah, sure. I would love that. Okay. What are you gonna play? Uh, this is Sisyphus. Fantastic. History forgets the moderates Those who sit recalcitrant and taciturn You know I'd rather tune and burn and scare this edifice, yeah 
accomplice So take my hand We'll do more than stand We'll claim this land Take my hand And we'll let the rock roll Let it roll Let it crash down low There's a house down there But I lost it long ago God, that's a great song. I'll tell you, I love that line, history forgets the moderates. It just underscores the idea that if you don't take a risk, you're probably not going to make that much of a mark. And I just love your songwriting. I love your approach to your own life. And um, I appreciate you opening up your process for me a little bit on this. Thanks, man. Thank you. I yeah. wish you all the luck in the world. Thank you. Hey folks, that's our show. God, what a treat it is when a musician comes on here and after talking about his processes and his methods and the weird way his brain works, then he gets to pull out a guitar and show us all. There's nothing I love more than hearing a backstory about a musician and then diving deep into their music. If you want to dive deep into Andrew's music, you're in luck because there's a lot of it. Just go to wherever you find your music, downloadable or streamable, and type in Andrew Bird and be prepared for an eclectic, unpredictable, and fascinating oeuvre of music. I would start with his most recent album, My Finest Work Yet, and then just keep listening. Maybe you'll start doing what everyone in the office has been doing for the last week and whistling nonstop, constantly. We have Andrew to thank for that. And speaking of deep dives, we have a whole website waiting for you to dive deep into off-camera. If you haven't yet been to offcamera.com, well, what are you waiting for? We've been doing this show for quite a while now, and you can go to our website and check out our archive of over 190 episodes of this very show. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure you subscribe to it. You can do that at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and that way you'll never miss a show. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review so that other people can find the show. And then, back at offcamera.com, you can also dive into our television show experience. We are on DirecTV's audience network, Monday and Wednesday nights, and we have repeated airings of our show throughout the week at various times. If you don't have DirecTV, you can get our television subscription package, which allows you to watch every episode we've ever done, as many times as you'd like, on the device of your choosing. For just $4.99 a month, you can have access to our entire archive. 
So that's a great deal. And if you haven't seen us in full black and white HD, make sure to check that out. You can also find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am at Sam Jones on Twitter and at Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. And if you subscribe to my Instagram, you'll see a lot of behind-the-scenes photos from the show. And you can get even more of an idea of the inner workings of Off Camera. So check all that out. I want to thank everyone that works on the show. Crawford Shippey, Michaela Galvin, Nathan Shields, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson for the hard work they do each week to bring you the show. And I want to thank you for tuning in and for being a part of this experience. I know I say this every week, but I do feel very lucky that I get to have these conversations with these iconic artists who have figured out their own path to amazing artistic freedom. And it is like receiving a master class in the very things I'm interested in every week. The fact that these shows go all around the world and that we have fans of off-camera from the far corners of the globe is exciting and inspiring to me. So thank you for help making this show a reality. And please join me next time when I talk to actor Ian McShane. My first job, I lied to the drama school saying I'm going to the dentist. And I went and did a film audition. And I went back in the afternoon to school. And then the next day I got this phone call saying, well, you got the part. So I went back into drama school and said to John Furl, who was the principal, I said, sir, I lied to you. I didn't go to a dentist yesterday. I did a film test and they've accepted me. And he looked at me and said, well, if you decide to do it, you know, we might not give you your diploma. And I couldn't help but go, diploma? I, need, well, I can act. I can <laughs> you know, put that on a shingle, you know, actor. I can act. I got <laughs> signed by Sir John Gilgan. I thought, and then, of course, he was, I think he was slightly humorous because they did give me my diploma and I left and did that. Ian has been acting for over 50 years and is the best in the business at bringing roguish, nefarious characters to life. You might know him from Sexy Beast, Jesus of Nazareth, and American Gods, among many others, but he's best known as bar and brothel owner Al Swearingen in HBO's Deadwood, which is coming back to HBO with a special two-hour movie after a 13-year hiatus. Ian joins me to talk about returning to the Deadwood set, why the key to acting is having an open heart, and the good old days in acting school, getting drunk with John Hurt. See you next time, off camera.